You're listening to The Five Rooms Podcast. Well, that was an interesting year. Hello. If you've not tuned in before, welcome. My name is Oliver Card, and it is a pleasure to have you listening to the Five Rooms podcast today. It's fair to say that there is an overwhelming amount of content out there to consume, and Lord knows the world doesn't need yet another 30-something bearded white male producing a podcast. So despite all of this, I just want to say a massive thank you to you for taking the time to listen to this particular show. For those of you who haven't listened before, I hope this episode gives you a flavour of what Five Rooms is all about and maybe a little inspiration to check out some of the previous episodes. For those of you who are new to the show, each guest is given five rooms to create an imaginary exhibition that tells their story. As guest curators, they have the chance to fill each room with stories of their lives, the essential tools of their trade and the influences which guided them along the way. On today's episode, we're going to listen back to excerpts from conversations with each of the ten guests featured in the first series of five rooms. We start where it all began high up in the Pyrenees Mountains, with portrait photographer Juan Carlos Ortiz. The very first episode of Five Rooms was recorded almost exactly a year ago now, over the Christmas holidays in 2019. Ah, 2019, a simpler time. Juan Carlos and I spoke about all aspects of his photographic work, including his first experimentations with a camera. the photography was a funny thing actually I have to say thank you to my brother Emmy I don't know if he knows that so um, we were sharing a room we were four siblings small house sharing a room so he when I was 12 something like that he organized in a room a dark room to develop photography when so when he was away I was sneaking in <laughs> and playing with that that moment to see white paper and something coming in uh, was amazing. So that was my first contact. And then we started to have cameras and video cameras and I started to play, I was always filming and I was always taking pictures. Uh, then when I grew up, I was always attracted to arts and I tried to, to go to the University of Arts and I was terrible painting. <laughs> so I think the photography was the natural yeah. Uh, path for me. It felt, yeah, that's the thing. It felt yeah. more natural for you. Predominantly, you're a, a portrait photographer. What's amazing looking at some of your work is you really make that connection. You really make that eye contact with your with your subjects. And can you tell me about your process of when you when you sit down with somebody or when you're approached to to take pictures of somebody? What's your process for making that connection with someone? I always I say to one person, what do you do? And I say, I listen to the people, even when they are not talking. Mm. So I think, and I have to say thank you to cinema, to the movies, especially to the uh, no-sound movies, because everything is very expressive, and you have yeah. to look at the people to to understand what they want, what they, what they do, what they're feeling. So I really like, in one way, to listen to the people, like even when they are not talking. So that means... When you when somebody's talking, just check the little just uh, the little movements that they are, the little ticks and the little things, and maybe make them repeat that. Mm. And then I talk with them. I talk a lot, so I think that's a good way to make people at ease, like uh, relax. 
And then the other thing that I really like is to play, to do like a game. So I started with my sister and I make her become something that maybe she doesn't know that she is, but she is. So I make her, I remember when I started to do, when I had my first medium format camera, we were doing this kind of old 60s uh, shooting where she's like a diva photography and, and she's a very plain, normal, regular girl. Pretty gorgeous, I love her, but she didn't know that she had that. And when, when she sees the picture, she's like, wow, that's me, I recognize that. So, but it's always about paying attention to the person. So sometimes I have to say I forgot the technique and, <laughs> but it's because I focus in the person. And what I want, I want, I try to figure what I want in my mind, what uh, I want to reach. And sometimes you get it, sometimes not, but in the process you, you get interesting things. On Carlos Ortiz. Valia Gliatti was next to appear on the show in episode two. She was kind enough to host me at her beautiful home in Battersea in South London. As an architect, the attention to detail in her response to the podcast brief was a real treat for me, as she carefully considered and constructed each room. We joined Valia in room two, as she describes the biggest influence in her decision to pursue architecture. So this room is very different to the first room. It's dark. It's almost impossible to walk from one end of the room to the next because I see a lot of concrete blocks on the floor scattered around and stacked or half collapsing off each other and different sizes. So navigating through the blocks to explore the room in the dark is already challenging. The room is dark because it's really representing this image I have in my head for many, many decades now. So I lived in Athens in the center and the school I was uh, going to was a bit further out. Uh, so it was north uh, of the city center and it was about an hour's drive considering all the traffic and everything else. So I was pretty much the first kid that was picked up and the last one dropped off. And obviously because school starts at 8, if you work back, I was always waking up at 6, 6.30. By 7 o'clock I was in the school bus. So outside it was always dark. En route to the school, we had to go through all the neighborhoods of the city center. It was dark. And I just have this image looking outside of the school bus and I was just observing the city and I found it always so frustrating that there was always traffic, people just stop everywhere, honk everywhere, they're shouting, they're frustrated. That really annoyed me. And I think that's when I had this idea of I will either be the mayor of Athens and clean it up or I will become an architect and I will fix it. So in this room, going back to that room, it's dark because it's early in the morning because Athens is not a dark city, but it's a lot of concrete scattered on the floor because you can't really navigate through the city as easily. There would be definitely some audio with honking so you get the real experience of being in Athens and if I could reproduce that image that I had, I would project it on the walls. This is an image of you looking through that bus window every day, 
seeing the city which you love but just all of that chaos throughout all of the noise and the dirt and the pollution and everything and just that juxtaposition as you say you look up you've got the blue sky but look straight ahead and it's all this chaos yeah and you just wanted to solve that chaos yeah do you think that's what really informed you to be minimalist in your approach to architecture absolutely you're craving that Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I can't just blame Athens as a city. I can also blame my parents. <laughs> that they just yeah. like uh, to, co- to collect things. Yeah, it's everyone else's fault. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Valley Agliati. From the chaos of Athens, we travel back to Crystal Palace in South London, where my next guest joined me for a lovely chat about his creative process, cow portraits, and whether or not cats have knees. Johnny Glover is an award-winning illustrator and animator, and in room three... I start by asking Johnny the rather obvious question of what tool an illustrator needs to do their job properly. A pen. A pen, number one. Uh, a pen or pencil. But which pen? I think uh, at the moment I like really chunky pens. If I'm working on a large scale, I like to use... I, I do, shall I name brands? Is that okay? I'm sure you can. I mean, if they send but, you a box of free pens, then that would be fantastic. It's more I want to criticise them as well. <laughs> um <laughs> You know that you get those chalk pens that people use for mm. graffiti, murals, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, them. I'm into using them. But the problem with them mm. is they are disposable. But I've worked out a way to fill them up. So that makes me feel better about them. But they are uh, they're really lovely to work with. So it's a bit like acrylic ink that comes mm. out. And you pump the pen and it gives this really thick, almost like Indian ink, deep colour to it. Which is really nice. And you can sort of draw on walls paper anything so they're really useful i think if i had to pick one yeah one of these ink markers and a bit of paper i'm going to give you a pencil case and you can put a few of these options great so this doesn't have to be just one essential tool this can be a number of different things yeah so okay let's have a pencil case let's have a few of the different options in so depending on what you're doing all right play around with that one of these pens but all the scales of pen so the small fine line version up to the really chunky beefy markers we're going to need a bigger pencil yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. And or would you prefer a pencil case or a pot? Do you like to see the pens all lined up? I'm ashamed to say I use my pockets, which end up getting ruined. I don't usually like... I've got pens everywhere. In that sense, we're going to walk into the room and there's just going to be pencils. Piles, piles yeah, of, yeah. Piles I'm not pens. very neat, I have to say. I've got stuff everywhere, yeah. all over the flat. You need them everywhere because you don't know when you're... You know, you might be sat down somewhere and you want to draw. Feeling inspired. Pull yeah. a pen out of your pocket. Exactly. Good to go. Yeah. Good to go. So let's talk about the environment in which you like to work. So Mm. what are the kind of essential things for you feeling like you're in the right space? I like to work with quiet. I'm one of those people. I don't, I find it really tough to listen to podcasts and music whilst I work. I can be sat at my desk or standing working for hours and in complete quiet. I love it, but I don't, the minute something goes on, I find it distracts my brain from what I'm doing. So Light is really nice to have, but I mean, increasingly that's a bit of a luxury, isn't it, in London? Okay, so in one of the walls, we're going to punch a nice big window so you've got daylight. Huge. Or do you, do you tend yeah. to work on, is your ideal to work uh, under daylight or under a controlled lamp? Definitely daylight. Fresh air. Yeah. I mean, just get rid of the wall. <laughs> Don't okay, need just, a window. As okay, long so as just it. fully glazed all the way down so we can let the light just spill in. Yeah. And you can open it. Fresh air is really good. Okay, so we're going to do that. We're going to have... A big window that we can open up to illuminate the little piles of pens all around. Yeah, can it be by the sea as well? Okay. Is that all right? Yeah, we can Yeah, I like the sound of the sea. Nice, constant kind of sea sound. Yeah, it's a bit like a human sleeping kind of Mm. rhythm. 
Yeah, yeah. it's really relaxed. But the only trouble is, if we do that, are we opening up to seagulls? Yeah, they're not good. I did, yeah, when I lived in Falmouth, you'd hear it. Yeah, they're awful. Okay. Is it the price to pay for the for the fresh salt? Maybe a lake. A lake. A lake. Okay, so overlooking a lake, so there's still a sense of water. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that'd be all right. Miles from seagulls. Yeah. Okay, Johnny, that's yours. Glover. Episode 4 featured Nazan Fikret, a coloratura soprano opera singer, who was the first of my remote interviews this season. I have to admit, it was a little disheartening not to have the chance to speak to Nazan face to face, but despite the distance, we still found time to discuss all aspects of the power of opera, the joy that she gets from singing in multiple languages, and what it's like to discover a vocal range you never knew you had. So the magic flute was something I started doing by accident. So in my third year um, undergraduate degree German class the assignment we were given was a tiny little bit of German dialogue and with that you did the first and the last lines of the music that went with that accompanying dialogue uh, within an opera and we, they chose the magic flute for my year group and randomly assigned sopranos a role within that the magic flute so it was a complete lottery as to which one you were going to get and I got assigned the queen of the night and I laughed because uh, for those that don't know, and I don't expect anyone to, it's it's the highest, I suppose, the highest piece in the soprano repertoire and in, in any opera repertoire. It's really high. It goes to top Fs. And I remember laughing and I thought, I can't do that. And I just did it for a joke in front of my friends and I hit the notes. I've never even tried to do it before. And I nearly fell out of my chair. What an amazing and- thing to stumble across and realise that you had in you, something which you didn't realise you had in you as well, like an, at that yeah. note. I do some I now wonder whether my teachers knew I had that facility but didn't want me to try it too soon because it is a bit of a dangerous one to try you can burn yourself out if you haven't got the technical training underneath you and underpinning what you do you could do it you could do damage and do it too soon the equivalent would be trying to run the marathon and, and just turning up on the day and not done any training so yeah from there I thought oh and an idea was sparked and then of course I went and begged my teacher to let me sing it and slowly but surely over the next few years, I started slipping it into classes. I think I might have recorded it for my final recital for my master's. And then every few years, a production would come up. The first one was at the Wexford Festival in the Republic of Ireland. And I did a young artist production of The Magic Flute. And that was my first professional Queen of the Night. And that was oh, that was amazing because it was my, you know, my mum's my heritage and so all my family from Ireland all of my granddad siblings and my cousins came to Wexford and I met a lot of them for the first time actually so that was amazing and then from there I've understudied at a lot of the main opera houses and then I did a big production in Sweden this exactly this time last year which was amazing with the Swedish chamber orchestra and I, I love it if the world hadn't been hit by a pandemic it would probably have been something I'd have done a lot over the next year and I think if I'm lucky it will be my bread and butter as a role for many years. Let's talk about the the character of the Queen of the Night then. How does it feel to kind of put on that outfit and that have that drama behind it as well because it must it must be quite empowering. It is it does actually really help. I've had all sorts of productions modern through to kind of really wacky stuff. The last one was mad. I was a a disco diva, a retired disco uh, dancer who 
couldn't let go of her youth and I had this giant headpiece, these big white angel wings and stood on a platform that was wheeled about by minions. I mean, it was absolutely off the wall, but it helped because it's something that's so dramatic to have that around you. It makes it very clear that it's not you, it's a character, which fuels the drama. But at the same time, it's terrifying because it's the most famous piece of music in that piece. So everyone's waiting for it. I mean, the audience are waiting for it. The critics are waiting for it. And you can almost hear the intake of breath and they, before you sing the high notes for the first time. Is she going to hit them? If you don't hit those notes, you may as well give up. Nazem Fikret, the accidental queen of the night. Next up, we're going to hear from video game designer Jack Good. We discuss his career in video games, including his part in the hugely popular viral sensation Surgeon Simulator. In this next clip, Jack and I discuss Worlds Adrift, a highly ambitious and critically acclaimed game that has sadly subsequently been shut down. Despite a beautiful vision for the project, sometimes unforeseen circumstances can ultimately affect the final outcome. Here's Jack to explain more. Worlds Adrift was an MMO that was set in a post-apocalyptic world. The idea was the planet that the, these cultures existed on had kind of broken apart and had formed these floating islands in the sky. While it was a post-apocalyptic world, nature had taken back the skies and it was quite a idyllic, beautiful place to be in. And the idea was that you would form crews with your friends and you'd build these sky ships and explore the skies together and try and piece together the the history of the world, which had kind of been forgotten. Some of the big influences for it were Studio Ghibli, uh, titles like Princess Mononoke, Castle in the Sky. Yeah, mixing that with a lot of the kind of historical stuff was we, we kind of looked into real life cultures and kind of brutalist architecture combined with Mesoamerican stuff. And it was one of the first games I worked on where we did actually have this world building aspect to it and, and focusing on that in a, in a big way where we had a writer on board. We had concept artists who were designing these cultures in their heyday. And then we were trying to figure out what would the ruins look like now? And we were trying to backwards engineer them and then build them. And then these are the ruins players would come across when they're exploring if you don't mind me asking, why was the decision made to, to shut the game down? The main reason that it got shut down was just a financial reason, which was that the servers cost a, a huge amount of money to run. And for the servers to keep running, we had to be getting making so many sales of the game each week. And the fact is, is that we'd gotten to a point where we had a core group of players who loved the game and they were playing it, but they weren't adding any more money to the game and we weren't getting the new players joining. And so it was just a case of we were losing more money than we were making each month even. Um, and that would even be the case if no one was working on it and we just kept the servers running. And that was it, as simple as that. For a long time, we were kind of like, this game is worth investing all, like, all this extra money into because it's our dream game. As a studio, Like we, we believe so much in this that we're willing to go above and beyond what we would with other games that we make. It was a really hard decision, but, but it was the right decision, I think. 
when the game was shutting down, we decided instead of just pulling the plug, we were like, let's make an event out of this. We ended up lowering all of the islands into the abyss. Loads of people were playing it and streaming it at the time. And so for all these players, it was like the world was actually collapsing in, in real time. And and then, yes, yeah, as, as the last island went into the abyss, the servers got turned off. And it was a really emotional moment. We, we were all kind of sat in the office watching it take place and a few teary eyes around the room. Not many video games get that sort of send-off as well. They will just yeah. end up on the shelf or, or end up being uninstalled. But actually, that's quite, quite an amazing emotional end to that, that experience. No one's done it like that before where the whole world just actually collapses and you watch it collapse around you. And knowing that that island going into the abyss, you'll never see it again and you'll never land on it again. And yeah, there's something quite poetic about it, I think. Jack Good. I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of people who would quite happily drop 2020 into the abyss. As we are in the middle of reviewing a year of five rooms, it seems only right to acknowledge the year that we just had. I don't think we'll ever really understand the impact of everything that's happened this year. That general sense of foreboding, the rollercoaster of emotions, and the lack of connection to friends and loved ones. The whole reason I started this podcast was to have the chance to actually sit face-to-face with people, to make time to discuss their vocations and passions, because I believe it's so important to celebrate those people in our society. Ha! Nice try, said 2020. A few days ago, on Saturday the 19th of December, in London, we got the somewhat devastating news that Christmas was effectively cancelled. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't go upstairs, lie on the floor, and exercise all of my rage by screaming endlessly into a pillow. I don't know about you, but I find it all too easy to paint 2020 as a year where absolutely nothing good took place. However, I really do think it's important to try and celebrate the small wins that we've experienced this year. Don't get me wrong, I have struggled on a number of levels and have felt regularly overwhelmed and often ashamed of how easy it is for me to feel completely defeated. I miss spending proper time with loved ones. I miss buying a round of drinks. I miss going to gigs, and I miss dancing. I mean, admittedly, no one else actually misses my dancing. But still, I have close friends and family who need some airtight hugs right about now, more so than ever, and it breaks my heart over and over again not to be able to deliver that love and support that I've come accustomed to. You know, the universe gave me long arms for a reason. It's to dish out some good hugs. But even throughout the adversity of this year, there will be new perspectives realised that change the way we look at the world. Even just on this podcast, the challenge of remote recording meant that I reached further afield than I ever thought of and connected with people all the way across the world. This is in no way an attempt to belittle the tragedy and the loss and the exhaustion of this year. I've seen friends lose loved ones. I've seen people burnt out from overworking and a massive spike in uncertainty from those in vulnerable industries. I hope that as a society, we gain a newfound perspective on the people that matter most, those that need protecting and nurturing, those who educate our children, those who care for us when we're unwell, and those who give so much positivity into this world through the arts. This podcast was always intended to celebrate those who contribute positively to this world, and I really hope to continue. I want to celebrate people from all walks of life who have been carrying on creating and making and finding new ways to work and express themselves. Okay, let's get back to the guests. My next guest is singer-songwriter Lauren Ray, who in 2020 saw the release of her second studio album, Woman in the Arena. We join Lauren in room four, where she discusses the creative writing process. 
I used to only want to write on my own. I always used to feel that if I had someone else in the room, I was afraid of saying something stupid. And that was one of the biggest things that used to put me off doing any kind of collaboration is I was afraid of being stupid or maybe saying the wrong thing or, you know, saying something really cringe and embarrassing. I mean, songwriting is a hugely vulnerable thing. You're essentially writing your diary with someone. It's a really bizarre thing to do. But what I learned was finding people I trusted that I could create and sort of share my experiences with them in a comfortable space really opened me up because, and it's something that I do when I'm writing with other artists is that you might talk about an experience in this kind of really wishy-washy way because it's your own feelings and it's sort of like, this is all these things and they will then hear it and help you condense it because they can, they have that perspective on it. They're not emotionally connected to the experience. So they can really help you condense it and really put a pin in the specific thing you're trying to get across in the song. And it's someone who's a lot easier to do that for someone. Most of my second album are co-writes. Whenever I do have a song that's completely written on my own, it's for a specific reason. Like it's something that I just couldn't share with someone. It's actually quite interesting because when I get a lot of attention or, or praise for a song that I wrote on my own, it definitely feels different to when I've written a song with someone as a co-write. I don't have anyone's opinion on it at the time, so I don't have any validation in the song until it's already out. I love touring and I love performing live, and I think that's something that I will always miss. But the experience of being in a recording studio and either creating something completely from scratch or creating a new song, you know, sort of a new um, recording from an existing song and just building something and being in that studio space... They're completely different things, but I think if I had to pick one, I would pick the studio space. The environment of being in a studio can be so many different things. It can be private, it can be creative, especially when I've written with other producers, you know, you can be shoved into a room. I mean, I went to Sweden last year a couple of times and I was shoved into different room. I say shoved, it seems a bit dramatic. <laughs> I was, you know... <laughs> By choice, I walked comfortably into a space that I agreed to go into. Crazy sweet. <laughs> just pushing you around. Just... Consensually agreed to go into a room with a with a stranger. And, you know, I've gone into a space with a, with a producer in Sweden, for example, who I've never met before. I don't know anything about them. And we're expected to create an entire song and produce it and create it and record it and then, you know, send it to someone by the end of the day. And the energy I get from having to be instantly creative and not knowing what's going to come out and then vibing with someone, a complete stranger in a space like that. And then just being amazed at what can happen and what you can create together. That's something that I absolutely love. And I will never not want to do that. That's just something that I just can't get enough of. And I try and explain it to, to my partner and people. And I'm just like, no, I just met this random person and we created this really dark song. And I don't know anything about this person. I don't know, you know anything about his personal life, but I think if I had to have the workspace, I think it would be that. I can do a lot in that space. Lauren Ray. Architect Damien Burroughs can be seen on TV screens, presenting the expert's opinion on programmes including Grand Design's House of the Year and How to Live Mortgage Free. In the next clip, we're going to join Damien in Room 2, as he discusses how he found his voice in a thriving Manchester scene. On the plinth in the middle of the room, I want to place a very small little rainbow flag and an equally sized little mirable. My whole process of, of, of coming out, if you like, was so pivotal to me as a person, as a designer, as to who I am now, 
that it has to be that period in time as an object. Before that, I was a, I was very shy, very introverted young black guy uh, in a white area. Didn't have any particular black culture surrounding me. If my upbringing wasn't you know rice and peas; it was fish finger butties because all the rest of my family members, apart from my brother, were all white. So there wasn't that sort of strong black heritage to to latch onto. So for me coming out, all of a sudden I was, I was surrounded by all these incredibly passionate, incredibly creative, loving, embracing members of the community who sort of took me in and allowed me to develop into the person that I was with the most immense level of support and care and compassion. And this was back in the day when uh, it was something you either had to make a decision about hiding or fighting for. And we fought for it. We went on protest marches. We picketed the streets. We created banners. And we showed our love for each other as a community in a very strong way, something that isn't perhaps as as, as prevalent today. And that shaped me. It gave me a lot of confidence as an individual. And in the short space of a couple of years, it completely changed me to a different person. And without that... I wouldn't have been able to go on to do the work that I do now in TV or running teams or pitching to clients or expressing my thoughts and my feelings and pitching a building, selling an idea. All of that came from the support that I got through that period. And the reason why the rainbow flag and the mirror ball are quite small is that whilst it's important, it doesn't define me. People don't say, oh, Damien, that gay guy they say damien that architect damien that this damien sometimes not great things <laughs> they say something else the last thing they would say is damien the gay guy i like the idea of playing with scale in this way and firstly i just want to say that's a very beautiful sentiment what you just said and i think it's beautiful that you were able to find yourself in this community where you were nurtured in that way and you felt that you could express yourself would you have quite a large room around and just a little tiny plinth in the middle? I think I would. It's almost kind of flipped around, is that the impact that those two little small objects had and what they represent was enough to fill that whole room. Do you think there was something unique about the scene in Manchester which really unlocked that for you? Oh, completely. Um, I mean, when I arrived there, the bar that I mentioned I started working at, Manto's, was one of the first bars that didn't have solid windows because before you'd literally just be having a drink and a brick would come flying through one. So this was uh, this was about repositioning the gay community within a city. It was about saying, we are here, we are not hiding, we are on display, you know, deal with it. Um, and that was the trigger for the whole of Canal Street, and we all know where that went. Damien Burrows. From the vibrance of Canal Street, we cross over the Atlantic to the USA, where I spoke to urban gardener Pamir Coleman. Pamir's work involves connecting communities in Philadelphia to the benefits of plant-based cooking. In room two, we discuss one of the most important influences in Pamir's life. Honestly, I would really like to celebrate my father. Without his influence in my life, I more than likely would not have been uh, as exposed to, like I said, nature um, as I am. Like, most of the people that I grew up with, again, living and living and growing up in Philadelphia in such an urban environment, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of hands-on opportunities uh, to experience uh, the outdoors. 
So with my father being a person who didn't grow up in the inner city, he kind of grew up outside of Philadelphia while still being in Pennsylvania. He had a completely different uh, childhood than my mother. So my mother was a, you know, like a city slicker, you know, (laughs) mom didn't really, you know, like to do like a whole lot of outdoorsy things. But I think when, when she met my father, and they got together. He kind of like exposed her to it. And so their children, myself and my brother got exposed as well. I could never repay him for, you know, the things that he has taught me and the things that he's shown me um, throughout my life. Like I said, uh, my dad, when he grew up, he had uh, a lot of animals. They had like snakes and turtles. He had dogs. He had cats. He had all kinds of animals that he cared for um, throughout his life. I can remember one of my earliest memories was I had a garden snake when I was about maybe five or six. And when I say I love this snake with all my heart, (laughs) I love this snake. We found it outside my school and uh, we took it home. My dad taught me how to care for it. We actually uh, made a terrarium out of like this really large plastic uh, water jug that we like cut in half. We put like soil in it and rocks and, uh, you know, I would find bugs outside and for the snake to eat. And since it was such a sh- like shabby enclosure, he would get out all the time. <laughs> Sometimes I'd come home from school and he'd be like slithering around the bathroom and my mom would be screaming like, get this snake out of here. <laughs> and I'd be like, come here, baby, you know, and put him back in, in my little like makeshift terrarium. I think if it wasn't for my dad, I would probably be one of those women who are terrified of snakes. <laughs> but I feel very comfortable with most aspects of nature, you know, whether it's animals or just getting my hands dirty or just literally like laying in the grass. I've had experiences with other like women my age where they're like, you're doing what? (laughs) You're not going to get dirty. I'm like, yeah, but there's nothing wrong with getting dirty. Like there's actually like a beauty in it. You know, I'm just really thankful for my dad for that because uh, had it not been for him, I think I might be one of those people who um, didn't get to experience like the full spectrum of life. I think it would be wonderful to celebrate your dad in this room. How would you represent your dad? Are we going to have a statue in the room? Are we going to fill it with all the animals that he's looked after all his life? What do you think? I think, yeah, filling it with all of the animals that that he's looked after, because there's been a lot. (laughs) That's a beautiful picture in my head. I remember he had this little like hot dog and, you know, he loved this. I've, I've, I've never seen the dog, but he talked about it so much throughout my life that I feel like I knew his dog, you know, that he loved so much. So I could picture that dog. I can picture, you know, all of the animals that he has had and that we've had over the years. Okay. What's your father's name? Uh, Daryl. Daryl. Okay. So Daryl Coleman, he's got the second room. We're going to devote it just to him. Awesome. Pamir Coleman. Episode nine features a conversation with makeup artist Lauren McCormack. Lauren took the leap from her day job to becoming a hair and makeup artist and has subsequently become a great success. Her work has taken her around the world. And in this next clip, we discuss her role in the ITV coverage of the 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan and what it's like to have to think on your feet when unique problems emerge. Uh, oh my gosh, uh, I just grin when I talk about the Rugby World Cup. I remember getting the email asking me to do the job. I was on a dog walk with my dad and and we tapped out and I got this email and I was reading it and I was like, I, you know, and something just doesn't sink in. You're like, I think 
I think they've just asked me to cover the Rugby World Cup and they've asked me to be the, the sort of sole lead in what I like to do everything. And it's three weeks in Maidstone covering the sort of group stages. And then we go out to Japan. And I was like, I almost, I think I actually said to my dad, I'm not sure if I want to do that, you know. And he was like, are you crazy? He was like, what on earth are you thinking? And I was in my head, I was like, oh, would it take me away too much from fashion? Because so much of my my weeks, a lot of fashion work comes in so last minute. So I keep my weeks quite free for anything that that comes in. And a lot of my TV work is weekend. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, it's sort of six weeks out from that. And am I going to miss some sort of opportunity? And he was like, for goodness sake, this is once in a lifetime. Obviously, it's up to you, but I can't believe you're even considering this. It was absolutely brilliant. The team was amazing. The, the work that went into it was just mind blowing. It was, you know, but they had crew out in Japan about a year before I think the actual broadcast helping set things up the, the powdering the, the powdering the broken noses I mean this it was fine they were great I mean you're working with sort of top athletes and they're getting ready they've got a job to do as well so they're thinking about what they want to what points they want to cover and trying to sometimes watch the match whilst it's going on so I'd I'd have the the laptop set up in the makeup room so that they could keep an eye on the game should they want to one of the funny things that happened after the one of the first broadcasts um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this but like, Lawrence Delalio came back in and we'd only sort of we'd only met maybe once or twice before and he, he came and he said uh, we've got a problem I was like oh my gosh what have I done I put something on his skin that's made him react he's uh, you know and I was sort of dreading what he was about to say next and he said I've pushed my earpiece so far into my ear and it's stuck and I was like, okay, um, okay, has the sound man gone? And I don't know why I thought it was the sound man's responsibility. I was just, you know, this is an earpiece. He is a sound man. He should do this. But he's like, no, 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 no. I'll sit in the chair and, and just have a, you know, have a little play. So he sat down in the chair and I sort of tilted his head and um, sort of got a cotton bud. I was trying to think of something that was sort of gentle enough that should I prod too hard, it's not going to cause any damage. And because of the texture of the earpiece, it's almost like rubber. Every time I pushed, it was just pushing it further and further into his ear. I was at the point, I think we're going to have to send him to hospital. There's no way this is coming out. And um, and one of the other presenters behind me sort of giggling away and saying, ha ha, you'll never guess what she had to do at work today. And I was like, just trying so hard to stay calm. The last thing any makeup artist wants to do is hurt someone or sort of be the reason that they've had to make a trip to A&E. That is not going to sit well so I was like right deep breath one more go and just sort of push this cotton bud so far against the side of his ear that I managed to slip it behind and sort of push it out from from the back and out it came and that was that <laughs> oh there we go and that's that's a great skill to have learned as well that if that happens again I'm like you know. guys step aside I've got this yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that was yeah not the broken noses so much as, as the ear problem but um yeah no, that was a good that was a good day <laughs> Lauren McCormack. The final guest of the series features a conversation with CGI Environment Generalist Supervisor Will Falser. Will's work involves creating beautiful and believable CG environments for feature film and television at DNEG, one of the world's leading visual effects and animation studios. We covered a lot of ground in our chat, but we finished our conversation discussing his work on Chernobyl, the five-part miniseries co-production from HBO and Sky, that dramatises the events of one of the worst man-made catastrophes in history. It's a dream project to work on, really, because it was the script was was amazing. You could sort of tell that it was going to be special because everything that had been shot looked great, and it, everything felt so authentic. And so the pressure was was really on for us as well. Within the environments department, we we were doing a, a fair amount of, of map paintings, which is a really old 
technique where people used to paint on glass and they'd have it in front of the camera and film through the camera. They'd paint, you know, a castle or, or, or whatever it may be. That's part of what we do, but we do it in Photoshop. And then we, we also have a 3D element as well, where I was building part of the reactor that had been destroyed. In terms of approaching it, lots of reference, lots of stock footage from the time. The art department had loads of great stuff. You found yourself on weird corners of the internet full of full of photographs from from helicopters and newsreels. Um, it's, it's a bit like being a detective, trying to piece together as much information as, as you possibly can to, to make it as close as you possibly can within the time you're given. The thing is, you could make it one for one, but it would take so long to do. You know, there's a set budget to these things. They can't go on and on and on. It was pretty satisfying seeing if you go on the internet, there's various comparisons where people have put the show next to footage from the time and newsreels, not not just the visual effects, but everybody was, was so true to creating something that felt authentic down to buying clothes on eBay from you know, from the Ukraine, the, the correct vehicles and the correct first responder unif- uniforms. And and it was a drive to not only try and make it feel authentic, but to sort of do the incident justice because it's affected so, so many people in all sorts of different ways. And I mean, I was actually born the day it happened. Oh, wow. it, okay. it, it always featured in my life in the background, perhaps more than other people in the UK. This is 26th of... April 1986 that this That's happened. That's the one, yeah. Everybody wanted to really do ordinary people justice because it's, and it's similar to what's going on at the moment with doctors and police officers and they're trying to keep society running and functioning. Yes, they're doing their job, but people are losing their lives to help the, the greater good and it's, it's a very humbling thing and I think that's what, I mean, I felt and I think a lot of other people felt when, when we're working on it, that the untold story of ordinary people's loss and and how important it is to give them a voice. And I know the show creator was, was also really focusing on lies and how they can make situations so much worse. It, it feels applicable to lots of lots of situations, really, when people aren't willing to take responsibility for, for reasons saving face or arrogance or or pride or whatever whatever it may be it is kind of a story of ordinary people willing to pick up the pieces when others make catastrophic mistakes really and and don't want to try and fix them they refuse to acknowledge that they exist it was brilliant to be a part of it i was was really really chuffed to, to play my my small role in in bringing it together Thank you to Will, and thank you to each and every guest featured on this first series of the podcast. This is very much dedicated to all those who have filled this year with light and encouraged me to pursue this project. For those of you who've got in touch, your feedback and correspondence has meant the world to me and has been a massive inspiration to keep making episodes of Five Rooms. Season two will come in 2021, and I cannot wait to share more tales of creativity, performance, and passions. You can check out all the episodes of Five Rooms wherever you download podcasts or simply head to fiverooms.co.uk to download the latest episode. In the meantime, stay safe, wash your hands and have a very Merry Christmas. This is Oliver Card.
Take care.